Oh, gosh, it's a bit hot like the film must have been for you guys. So, um, anyway, um, Barry, thank you very much for yeah. coming in this evening. It's well, a thanks, real privilege. Thanks, thanks everyone, for coming to watch it. That's yeah. good, yeah, surely. So I'm sure you all have lots of burning questions, um, but I think it would be really interesting to go back a little bit, you know, because it's you've shot it recently, but, you know, it's... If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about how you how you started, um, okay, um, or maybe think about when did you last see him? But before we go back right, a long way, let's start a little bit about Hurt Locker. So you shot that a few years ago. Three years ago, yeah. It was we were shooting probably this time three years ago, yeah. And yeah. Um, so it was quite a long period for it to get its release, partly because I suppose it was a risky film being a, a film about Iraq and most of those films have not done particularly well <clears throat> not to say this film did financially very well it made made its budget back which is always a good thing but it's um, it's the it was the lowest mm. lowest grossing film to ever win an, uh, an Oscar so that's quite I think that's quite a feat actually it wasn't based on the money <coughs> Especially when it was up against Avatar, which had, <laughs> which had made its money. So, um, yeah, and we were three years, uh, three years ago. The budget was five million dollars when we started. It's, if you look at IMDb, they'll say it's ten million dollars, but it was, it was half of what. Well, certainly, they weren't spending five million dollars more on, <laughs> on our facilities anyway. Um, anyway, and I first got involved because I mean the connection would be that I did um, United 93 with Paul Greengrass and Catherine Bigelow had seen that film and uh, of course she thought that was something special and she contacted me and our very first in fact I never even got to meet Catherine until I was in Jordan and um, it was simply a phone calls phone calls about the look the style and, the, and the, what I think is a fundamental decision about that film is to shoot on 16, Super 16, mm. which we made o over a telephone conversation um, just based on the fact that what she said to me just led me to think that that's exactly how it should be. And I, I, I've got to say, I was telling you earlier on that um, <clears throat> I got to take, well, the film obviously went to Los Angeles earlier in the year and the ASC and the AFI both screened it at that time and um, I thought the American cinematographers might have a little thing about the Super 16 but they were actually really 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 enthusiastic and very pleased that it had been shot on Super 16 and it kept that medium alive you know and then I was surprised to hear that The Wrestler had been another Oscar nominated film had also been shot on Super 16 so it's a very life medium I know it's one of the ones you use here a lot so uh, I'm really quite glad to do that. So if we if we go back to when when you got the script, because I think I'm really interested to, to hear about how you sort of began to think about the script and yeah. and to visualise that. So <clears throat> so when came through the door, uh, <laughs> or not? yeah yeah probably emailed it or, or right. I can't remember yeah yes. you read it on the in email yeah. form. I could see that it was a, a, the reason I liked the film. What, what, I was very interested in working with Catherine, obviously because I knew her mm. other films, but I didn't know all her other mm. films because they're very diverse. Uh, but I was also, the script was was obviously very um, well written and well researched. And in fact, the film itself is very, very, very much 
the script, surprisingly, it might have a kind of sense of documentary and finding things at times, but it's actually a very controlled film in the way. Mm. So a Mark Bowles script, you know, thankful to him for writing such a great, great piece. Um, when so, you get a script, yeah. what, what is it that you... What, what, what is it you're actually looking for in, the, in that? What, what interests you particularly as a cinematographer? I, look, I always look for the political. I mean, I make my career and my history has always been making films that have some mm. political content. Now, there's a kind of... I had two thoughts about this film. It was obviously about American soldiers in Iraq, which I think is a very bad thing to, to be, <laughs> as well as the British soldiers. Uh, but I think there's always two sides to these stories, and there is, you know, they are also victims. And I thought the element of the film that I would... I thought was important and interesting was the, how these guys are also victims of war, you know. And Catherine, and I discussed that right away with Catherine, and we, we both agreed with it. And I think, you know, when they were picking up awards at the BAFTAs and all the, all the other places, that Mark and Catherine both made comments about the, the terrible nature of the war. So I think it, it was a vehicle for saying something. I wouldn't say it's the most political film about Iraq you could make, there are probably a lot of better films, but this one got got seen and got known, so uh, it did its piece, I think. So I, that's what I would look for. I would look for that and a good storytelling and plenty of good visual material because that's basically the cinematographer's job, isn't it? And I often say, like, well... There, when I work on a Ken Loach film, I'll say to Paul Laverty, who writes most of those films now, I say, why don't you just leave a few blank pages because we could fill that in. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's always that element. Uh, I look for the blank pages, if you know what I mean. Mm. The, the script is telling you all this, but you can say, well, that scene needs to be like this, and it needs to, you know, in my head I can see other things happening, you know. And that may be without diverting from the story in any way. It's all about adding to the story. Mm. So in terms of conversations with Catherine at the time, where, where do you start this conversation? You, you're on the phone. She was, she was already in pre-production. Well, it was a bit of a myth. Involved? You know, she called me saying that the film was going to happen and it was going to happen in Jordan. They'd already agreed that. But to be honest, they, this is the truth, they, they'd, they had one person out in Jordan on the end of a phone <laughs> uh, who kept the film kind of alive. And I was waiting, and they said we were going to start shooting in April. And I spoke to her perhaps in, actually, probably about March. And they said, you know, we're going to start mid-April, start shooting in May, mm. beginning of May or something like that. And um, it didn't quite happen like that because the money actually wasn't in place. And they were, it was, she was forcing the film to happen, which I'm sure a lot of filmmakers mm. will experience when they get to make films, is you have to force the film to happen. And... Um, there was a point I actually said I'm just getting on the plane I know once, once I knew they were out there I said you, you know you said we were going to start at the beginning of May and now it's towards the end of May or whatever you know mid-May um, I should be out there getting ready prepping and so I kind of forced, I didn't really like force my way out there so just send me a ticket and, I'll come. and it was a bit of a shambles to be honest but then from there we had a little bit more prep time than I would have had normally because I was out there probably a week or two before they really wanted me to get there and and we started to build the crew and I learned more about Catherine's mm. perspective on it we found the best locations 
and uh, you know, and we a kind of principle that we'd already set out was that we would use as many local crew as we could, and we would not go there as like an American invasion or you know, Western invasion, like, and just to say we will bring on as many people as we can. Though we did take nearly all the heads of department we came from, uh, came from either well, mostly Britain or yeah, it's, a, it's a quite a British film in a way. You know, great mm. uh, makeup designer who I just worked with again on Coriolanus. You know, you know the camera team who were um, well, some from Canada and some from Denmark. So it's a bit of an international thing, and uh, yeah, so. Mm. So during during the, the prepping, what what particular could you just say a little bit about what you'd be looking for or who you'd be working with and the sort of the, that that process. I, well, I spend I mean the time like I think a few weeks ago you watched the um, Paul Greengrass. What, what did you watch? It was Greenzone, was it? United ninety three. And uh, United ninety three, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think you know directors don't tend to talk to me a lot. I think I listen a lot to what they say and then I. And I try and just picture what it is, and we'll exchange images or pieces of references. And um, I'm quite stubborn, I think. I think I get an image of it in my head, and then I try and just show it when, as soon as we start to shoot, this is what I mean. This is the look, you know. And usually I've been employed because someone's seen another film, like, say, it's United 93 relative to this, or. With United 93, it was a film called uh, Out of Control, a film I did with Dominic Savage. So mm. people refer back to other things. It might be Ken Loach film, it might be something else. But that's uh, so you come with a bit of a history, I suppose. And when I moved from documentaries into films, it was bringing that history with you. You shoot these documentaries in this style, that's the kind of film I want to make, but it's a feature film now. So you come from an era where documentary was very important and important in your training and your visual understanding. Yeah, it was essential. So it was essential to do documentaries because mm. there was no British film industry at one point. You know, mm. there was a, I think there was a year in the mid seventies where seven films were made. You know, mm. and that would have been films made at studios with, um, with crews that had were ready and waiting to go or the BBC made the films and they had 65 film units at Ealing alone and Ealing was only there's two there's I think three centres of filming in London alone and there's Bristol Birmingham Glasgow Manchester Leeds everywhere you know. so the chances of freelance I was only ever freelance uh, a camera assistant to get a job at, at all <laughs> as I was explaining seemed impossible you know but uh, I knew that that's what I was going to do. So, so here. when did you think about working in film? If we go back and you 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 start you went from school to art school. Yeah, which is my kind of escape. Yeah, but I'd seen film. No, I mean I I'd managed to see films, which is this is obviously before the DVDs and VHS, <laughs> and uh, you know you had to, you either went to the cinema to see a film or you saw it on TV. And the BBC used to show world cinema, and that's that was my inspiration it wasn't a kind of it wasn't even cinema experience really it was a, it was but it was a piece of real cinema it was a Vajda film called Canal which Andrish Vida which just really took me away you know and left me with that feeling that you still I still say when you turn over the camera you want that kind of 
that excitement that you have when you see if you know the film that makes you emotional when you turn over the camera you want to do that and the first time I did actually turn over a film camera was to shoot titles when I was at art school for someone else's film letter set which you guys won't know so white letters on a blackboard I lit it and I measured you know it's about this big and I took about eight light readings and I went around I checked it again I checked the three lens and checked everything and then I remember pushing the button in my heart just going and I, and I say that's, you know, if you can achieve that again, which, you, which I managed to do, I've got to say, you know, working on Green Zone, Hurt Locker, yeah. um, United 93, Ken Loach films, you feel that that moment is so precious that you, if you feel like you're, you're going to miss it, 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 I don't know what would happen, but you, you feel that, but I always feel that, I always feel absolute intensity when I'm, when I'm filming, you know, and... Uh, <coughs> And I feel, just working with Ray Fiennes, who is a real perfectionist, and I'm not a perfectionist, but I believe that 100% of every shot should be, should be usable. You know? And that's, you know, we would be disappointed. I go, oh, shit, I missed that thing. It was like, and these might be long six-minute takes or something. You go, I just wish I got that little piece there, you know. And then you watch it back maybe on the video, and it'll go like, Oh, you did. You see, you actually got it. You just weren't conscious of it because you're in a. You, be, you do definitely get into a, a kind of zone of, uh, of. I don't know, passion. Really, I suppose it is. Which is what. Which is what makes cinematography. I think it's a passion for film. Because so. you still really like the operating. You operate yourself. I still always and you operate. Yeah. Just yeah. like that connection. What is it? For, what well, is it? The. One, it comes from the documentary where you, you're, you're connected to the subject. And I think, I mean, if, if there was one connecting line through any of the films I've worked on, I'd say it was humanism. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's about the connection between people. And, the, and, you know, the first thing I discovered, it's a very hard thing. If you ever pick up a camera and walk down the street and point it at a stranger, that's one of the hardest things to do the first time you do it, you know. But once you've broken that, that barrier... You know, I found that behind the camera, you can be as intimate, and you are. You, you see the most intimate things. In documentaries, you know, you, you would go into places and, and people would just tell you things that we, they would never tell. Their best friends, their family, you know, they start to tell you these things. And the same thing happens in film, you know, where, where actors pour out this emotion in front of you and you think... This is the only place to be. It's, it's looking through the the eyepiece, you know, and that's um, it is the best job in film because no one ever sees that. They don't see it for the first time, you know. The editor sees it again on on in the Avid or, or on film when they're editing, like Ken Loach film still edits on film. But you you never get that moment, the real moment, you know, and um, that's what I've always felt very very passionate about, you know. And it is then you felt. You know, I can walk away from the camera, and I said earlier on that you can make sure that you have it editorially. I'll never, I like to operate so that even with four cameras on this film, or or two cameras on the last film, or I don't know how many we used on you know, Green Zone, but that my camera, the, the, the images I was I was collecting, would make the film. It, it had all the story, and it, and it would make the edit because that's what the documentary film gathering process was about if you left a scene and you didn't have the material to make it into a, a real story 
then you'd failed, no matter how beautiful that image was or that, you know. So the best, the best schooling was documentary to, mm. for me, you know. So. And so how, did, how could you explain a little bit how that affected maybe your lighting or your... Um, yeah. You're, you're yeah. At that, that aspect, if, if, you're, if you're in... I think because what, what I do is there's a balance between nothing is more precious than the other thing. So look, mm. I'll probably sacrifice lighting for the kinetic, for the movement. Mm -hmm. and, and I would sacrifice both those for the performance. <laughs> because that's how I was trained. That's, Ken Loach trained me in that way. In that, uh, but what I'd realized before why Ken picked me was because I was pretty much a blank slate. I hadn't made films before. I'd made documentaries. And Chris Menges, who'd shot a lot of his films, had moved on and was starting to direct. So he said, he called me, and he's, he knew I was a, like, what, like he picks his actors. He was going to train you in his method. But you also had to have the experience to apply to that method. So that was, that was the key to it. And um, previously to meeting Ken, I, I had this theory in my head that there's three... I may have said it here once or twice before, I don't but not maybe to you guys, is that the, the three things that I just mentioned, the, move, the kinetic movement of the camera, the, the, the camera, the object, which is, this, which is obviously your actor or the person in the documentary, and light, are the three things that we use as, as cinematographers. And I learned that you had to keep the camera in the hand because when you walked in through a door, you had no options in, in the documentary <coughs> days when there was no particular plan about what you were going to do. All you could do to make a good image, or to capture the image, in fact, was to move your camera relative to the light and to the subject. And so those are the three things. And you, in doing that, you may sacrifice. You may sacrifice any of them. You know, you might say, "Well, I can only shoot the back of this guy's head because that's the mo most beautiful image." Okay, so you're sacrificing one side of that, or you might say, "I'm not going to move the camera because it's the perf perfect place to be, but the light's wrong." So you sacrifice the light, or you, or you can try and get the three to balance as, as clearly as you know. As, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do on a film: is be in the place where you balance the object, the subject, the camera, and the light. And that could be daylight; it could be the light you put into the film, and it could be. But that's it. Those are the only three things you've got to play with, really. You know, you can use time and space can move the camera, it can be kinetic. And my, back, my art, art college background was, I believed, to be, I was a sculptor in my head. I never got to do very much of it, but I, I, I see myself as a sculptor still, and it's a kinetic. Filmmaking is kinetic. And anyone who believes that three-dimensional, 3D filmmaking is an improvement, it isn't. It, because it's, if film doesn't ha hold that already kinetic visceral uh, thing that draws you into it, whether it's Canal, which was made in 1956 or something, you know, or the best film you've ever seen, whatever your favourite film is, you're drawn into it. There's no way you have a, a barrier between the screen and yourself. There is nothing between you when you're in, inside a film. You know, and I think that's the role of the cinematographer, is to put, is, is to make that three-dimensional world real. You know. 
that's my <laughs> that's my dream. <laughs> Keep trying to achieve it, you know. Well, it's uh, it's very impressive, but you have a crew. You have a you know the the all the the mm. wagons. You know, you get suddenly yeah. get onto these bigger features, and there you yeah. are. It's not just you and a documentary. How how in prep? Do you, how, what what what's your emphasis to try and build towards that so you can maintain that flexibility in your in your shooting? Well, I mean, to I imagine reduce, you must it's reduction. Very quickly. It's reduction. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's I, it's trying to get the right people around you. Mm. You know, I try and work with focus pulling is obviously a, a, an important part mm. of that. You know, mm. when in documentaries, I could you know with the films I did with Nick Broomfield and things, it, I would load the magazines you know mm. keep the camera serviced and with one hand I could stop pull and zoom and focus you know use the left hand to carry on the zooming and stuff you know and and hold the camera and be and do all those other things move kinetically relative to the subject and and listen and be part of the story you know but when you have a film crew, then it does get in the way. But you'll there's very little technical stuff in this film. There's very little in Coriolanus. Green Zone, it's practically no technical thing. Hurt Locker, it's all done handheld. You know, it's not all handheld, but it's. I, I try and reduce those things. So when you turn up on the morning of the shooting, yeah, what's what's the what's your preferred sort of procedure on this because. I probably disappoint people. I don't. I don't actually study the script too well. I, I know what the script is, but I won't study it. I, I'm lazy, but I know what we're going to do that day, and I know and I prep the locations, and I know that this when we do the the technical rec is that this this kind of scene will happen in this kind of place with this number of people. But I'll often, you know, by the time we get around to shooting towards the end of the film, you're so exhausted and you. You know, you're relying on your gaffer to go like, remember, we said, we do, yeah, yeah, okay, do that. You know, oh, that was a terrible idea, don't do that. Um, you know, and, and they've said with Paul Greengrass, he was notorious for his saying like, okay, the scene happens here on the stage, two people talking. No, I think they should, he'd come in in the morning and go like, no, really, you should walk out the door and up the stairs. It'd be better if they were moving, wouldn't it? And then we'll take him around the building. So we would just prep everything in the end because we knew that's where he would take his idea. So I learned never to be fixed you know I was the kind of guy who said like no but you said it's here and it's all ready we've lit it and it's you know I can't do that it'll take me another day to do that you know then I wouldn't be working with the kind of people I work with yeah. and the, the key to it is working with directors who trust you and other ones who, who, who brave directors who just say do that do more of it like it looks like this but that's I want it more like that and that's Paul with his exact like that Catherine was the same and Rafe finds was the same Dominic Savage is similar to that you know. so you those are the people I enjoy working with because they give you this trust and and let you express yourself but I as in a documentary you express yourself in that moment too much preparation would, would kill it for me and you know and I, I'd like to think I'd like to say they like that method of working where they're not also fixed on marks and places like you know mm. now, this is not to say every kind of filmmaking is like this and it would work for everybody mm. definitely not but it's just where I come from I just have this ability to you know, we, I mean jokingly say empty your mind but obviously it's full of it's full of thoughts about what you're going to do and have a crew around you who are open to that you know and then it doesn't that means 
I don't want to, I don't want to be sat on a crane or have the camera fixed on on the end of a luma crane making choices like this I want to have it in my hand and being able to or even you know on a tripod mm. but being able to pan around the room and find what's next you know like in the Ken Loach film it's it's about listening someone someone moves or reacts and that's what you want to be mm-hmm. you want the camera to be listening and looking you know so um, so I, I, it is disappointing, but I'm not very, I'm not a very organised, planned person. I don't make even. I leave a lot to my gaffer to, he'll make sketches of all the lighting plans because often if you have to come back to something, you'll need that, you know. But surprisingly, I do remember, you know, I can go into a, back to a location weeks later and I go like, yeah, but you've forgotten there was a little, we had a little tube light on the floor here, you know, so. And the other thing I've done is to develop lights that you can put inside a scene, you know, because that's helped me to get, you know, I light a big scene, I light the whole area. Like I said, it, it would be like this, but you could have go outside. And and so I sacrificed light, mm. lighting. I think, you know, it could look more beautiful. But on the other hand, there's an intrinsic beauty in it not being too good, mm. you know, and I think that's... You know, I don't know where that balance lies. You know, and I fail often, I think, but I sometimes succeed as well. And you think, well, that couldn't be more beautiful because it's not quite right, but it's not ugly and it's truthful, but it's not drawing attention to itself either. You know, those are the things that I look for in a film: is kind of honesty and and you feel if you've given more to the actor or to performance or to the subject. I think you've got the audience connected to you and then there's a lot of sympathy. Mm-hmm. Good example. I mean, this sympathy for this film took it right up to the Oscars, which is amazes me, to be honest, because it's a good film, but I'm not sure why people feel it is so good, such a good film to be singled out like that. You know, so. Yeah. so just to talk about the lighting a little bit further, um, what, what sort of lighting kit do you like to, you know, I think students would be interested yeah, to hear, yeah. what, 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 what choices do you make? Or uh, well, as I always start, I mean, I could, I often just, again, I'm lazy, I'll go like, are you going to send us a lighting list? I'll go to the gaffer, remember on the last one, what did we use? I can't remember, it was like, okay, so we'll have a couple of 12Ks and 6 k you know, like, yeah, but we've got a bigger space this time, we've got all the, okay, more 12Ks. Mm-hmm. But we'll always end up with... <laughs> but I don't use 12Ks a lot. I'd prefer 6s or 4 Ken Loach wouldn't even use a 12K. It would be 6s and 4K HMIs. A lot of Kino flow. Uh, and, and then what I've done in recent... Well, over the last few years, it came out of necessities, put the Kino flow tubes into drain pipes, literally into drain pipes cut away. We just call them tubes or drains, you know, because they're just drain pipes. And they're painting them in white on the inside and they're kind of half cut away so you the light can only come out this way but you can just lie that on the floor and shoot above it you know and that light then can be just a little up light on the hand here or something like that under a table Uh, or you can then stand it up it's like four foot tube like that it could just be uh, behind a door or something like that and it just gives an extra little fill and the, the, the reason I did that was working with Ken Loach. He doesn't like you to, once you set the scene, doesn't like you to change things. But of course, after the first take, you go like, that was terrible, it's too bright on that face there. And I could just walk across them and just go, turn it, just turn it into the wall a little. And it just, now it's much softer, it's less light. You know? Or I need more light. 
turning it around. So, um, and that's why I operate. That's why I like like that. And I like I like a lot of little things inside the frame that the actors don't necessarily know are there. And I'll also use you know look at what is natural firstly and you say well this is how it should be maybe it's not a, you know maybe change the bones are a little bit the shadows are a little strong use this for your hand to find out where the shadows are coming from and soften those a little bit maybe put diffusion on them you know so you little tricks that you just learn that's I like that I don't, I don't like that and I tend to un underexpose a lot of interiors or night film nights shots and stuff as you saw in here, where the night scenes are quite grainy. Um, and I did that on Green Song a little bit, perhaps too much, but I did that as an effect as well. You know, so. Yeah. so talking about um, film stock and underexposing, and what, do you have a choice? Do you, do you test film stock? Do you like to look at film stock, or do you just go, that's what I, mean, I like to use? <laughs> well, not, I, you know. yeah, I mean, again, these, like the tools, I mean, it's like, I like film, and I like film cameras, mm. I've just used the, the new Tuperf Arton 35, the Penelope, which is brilliant because it's light and, and is very flexible. Could you I just used, explain about Tuperf a little two, bit? Um, just, just to, yeah, it, not everybody knows. Well, it's, 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 an old, it's an old thing. They used it on the spaghetti westerns. It's, um, it's an economic way of using the 35mm film because you're only having, instead of a four perf pull down for a, an open gate, which is the Academy. Academy shape. You want that shape, but you're going to squeeze it into a smaller, so Super 35, smaller space, equivalent to what Super 16 was to 16 mil. That's strange because the Super 16 frame got bigger, but this gets smaller. <laughs> but you know that the film stock is good. So anyway, it's yeah. hard to explain because it's two perf. Go to Google. Just put yes. two perf yes. 35. <laughs> Super 35 history and Wikipedia yes. will tell you and you get all the pictures of it but, there's a, but what Arton have gone and done is build a camera that is specifically for that so uh, one of the best things you could say about it is you could put on a 400 foot magazine of film and it will run the same length as a 1000 foot magazine of 35mm film will do so it's a quarter of the weight or two thirds a third of the weight which is great because that way you can shoot, for, have a ten-minute, a nine-minute magazine on your shoulder, so you can run long takes, and but you can use it very much like a handheld camera. You know. So you a Kodak or a Fuji? I've right? always used I've used Fuji for the last ten years or so. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't used, I haven't touched Kodak. But that's not to do. Not. I, I don't think you know, and I don't think the. Again, I'm not. I, 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 I'm not very technical about the film stock. I know that the 500 SA film does this <laughs> and I'll tend to use 250 if you look at all the films I've done it's like 250 SA for the daylight <coughs> because I think I've got a good read. even when it's like incredibly bright here that means if you put the 250 SA on it's 30, F32 or F64 but I'll ND that right down to 5.6 or 8 but towards the end of the day I feel that the last hour and a half the last two hours of the day is when you get all your best stuff so you you pull out the filters and you don't change the film stock and then you know when it's the sun has just gone over the horizon but you're still trying to get that same scene you're shooting wide open now on the 250 rather than having to change stock and go to from a, fi a 50 ASA to a 250 and I think that would be a bigger jump than 
keep it the, and I like grain I like grain in the film so I think it's one of the it's it's one of the things that um, the digital medium are trying to reproduce the film look whatever that is is they're trying hard to make it we already have it so why why wouldn't I use it you know that's my feeling it's it's uh, what I've always learnt to love you know I like a certain softness in the film as well and I think um, you know so I've never I'm not, I don't, to be honest I've never used 50 ASA film at all uh, I suppose we used to use the 64 ASA Kodak when on documentaries but um, not for a long long time no, I prefer a bit more grain in the, in the negative I'd like, I'd like to ask you a question I know um it's very technical in one sense, but I know it causes students a lot of a lot of anxiety in a sense. Is how to use a light meter, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's yeah. as simple or as it's complex as. Uh, but how what what how do you actually use it? Because obviously, it, on one hand, it's a tool. On the other hand, you're making choices. Yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, d- I could also this is the other thing. I can put my eye to the camera mm. from the documentary experience. It's not like bragging or anything, mm. but. You can, I can see the light changes because that's what I've done all my life. Mm. Now it's like, and I'll, I'll, I will often do little stop pulls inside mm. a scene because I'm operating, uh, and that's not because the sun's gone in and out. It's just because I think that needs a little bit more exposure here, and it's getting too bright here. I want to darken it, you know. Um, but uh, I carry the meters here, <laughs> and I go. I have a spot meter, a Gosson spot meter, and I, you know, sometimes I'll. I'll use that mostly to say this scene is really not about the illumination on the faces in the middle of the room, it's about the texture of the walls that they're in and everyone can just live in that space. So I remember seeing some beautiful image from Steraro in a a film I can't remember and you realise, oh, that's the trick, that's what he's doing. He's not lighting the interior of the room, he's lighting the exterior, you know, Mm -hmm. the the, the periphery. Mm -hmm. And then you just believe... Then you know that's a really beautiful thing to do, and uh, you know that's a kind of trick. But at other times, you'll do that thing, which is you light the face and let the walls fall fall away. You know, but that's with the style of filming that I do. It's harder to do that because it means bringing in lights closer to the subject. Mm-hmm. And on a Ken Loach film, that's not even possible because you wouldn't be even allowed to bring a light. No, it's not true. I can bring a light into the room, but he's, he's frowned upon. <laughs> you know, so it would have to be hidden. It would have to be high. Maybe hanging off something, or, or like I said, low on a tube on the floor, or, something. <coughs> so, um, or bouncing through a window and skimming the floor so it comes up again. You know, like bouncing mm. up. And then. So I'll use light that does that. That kind of simulate light coming distances by coming off the ground first, mm. not coming directly, <coughs> through, but coming off the ground and up. Mm. You know. Um, but the light meter is, is a tool. It's I, you know, I, I find myself going days and days with thinking, I'm really like fixed on this light meter now. I'm like checking all this thing back to the day when I was doing that that little letter set credits. You know, I was going like, I need five exposures on this. No, it's like it isn't. It's one exposure. It will do everything. And in documentaries, I would make a point of not doing stop pulls. I was really adamant about that at times. You know, like that's what your eye sees if you set it here inside this room at 2.8 and you walk out into a daylight it should just burn out and then you correct after that so I do that kind of thing still I, I time the stop pools if you're going big interior exteriors I'll time them to be late so they so it's like your eye you know like 
I can't adjust now. Suddenly, okay, now I'm back into this, this subject. But um, I use my light meter, and then I usually go down to two eight because <laughs> that's what it usually is. What it and when it's under two eight, I keep saying it's two eight because that's what the lenses are, at, you know, the zoom lenses. So, <laughs> and and that's what happened on the green zone. It, it was we had this night sequence that kind of evolved. It wasn't written or anything. And we started it, and Paul wanted it very, very dark and very colour of death, we talked about. And, um, and over a huge space, and we didn't have the lights to cover it. it was, but it was meant to be like, we're going to shoot this because now we're going to stop and then come back in three months' time. But once we shot this first part of the sequence, it all became like that. And it grew and grew and grew, and it became like a third of the film. And what we'd done was shoot three stops underexposed. And then not done any more testing ever in between while they edited. They just edited on the Avid from what they could see. And so when it finally came to the grade, it was quite a difficult subject to deal with. Certainly the film was a difficult subject anyway. And uh, it, some sleepless nights. But I think it has, a, you know, I'm proud of what we did. It's a, it's a very difficult, you know, this is meant to be a real war. It's not meant to be a... A film about war, you know, we're trying to get as close as we can to that feeling, and a lot of the imagery that I, that I've been referenced on Green Zone was uh, YouTube, you know. Whereas this film, The Hurt Locker, you think about it, three years ago, YouTube wouldn't have had carried that much information. I think it existed, didn't it? But it didn't carry that much information. But by a year and a half later, YouTube was full of footage from Iraq. And that, that informed our look of the film for Green Zone. I'd like to ask if anyone's got any questions. Uh, okay, so, Robin. Hi, thank you very much. I enjoyed that immensely. Um, you talked about kinetics and really the camera dancing with people and the relationship with the camera to people and how it, I think, adds a reality to things through, from your documentary through to film. Then you talked about perhaps using four cameras or two cameras on some of the films. I mean, yeah. how, how do you <laughs> mind-bogglingly apply that kinetics to yeah. two or four cameras? Well, that's I mean, how does what that this work? film was about. That was, that, was the, that was the fun of this film, in a way, is that uh, I would... And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't always give myself, like, the key shot. I would say, like, you follow these guys, that you know, like some um, Neils or, or Scotty, like Scotty Mac you're on this guy I'm on him there was no big there was no main actor so it wasn't kind of any precious thing at all it's like you're on this guy I'm on here you know okay if we if you pan by and you and I, you cross me that's okay that just happened you know they're going to cut between them but um and it started off with the two cameras and the third camera was meant to be doing second unit and then we Catherine we didn't have the facilities to have a second unit we couldn't leave a street made up with those bombs and whatever, you know. So we, so we use the third camera as our. Okay, just add the third camera. You go up in that building and shoot that one, you know. And, and if we're in shot, just wait while we're out of shot, and that's your. That's what you're going to do. And uh, and it, I don't know. I, I got I've, after all that those years in documentary. I had a visual. I can. I'm very good at visualizing like time, like what might, what will happen, what could happen. And space where you should be, and where you should be relative to each other, for the edit, and also, you know, you can cross shoot dialogue, 
if you're on a long enough lens. The trouble is, if you're on two wide lenses, you're obviously going to catch each other's shot, you know. But if you've got two long lenses, you can shoot dialogue like one camera's over there by the corner of the wall shooting me, and on this shot, the other one's over here doing Harry at that shot, you know. And if I move across it, that's a good thing because then then you're outside the circle. Then this is my other theory that I live by, is you stay, keep the cameras outside the circle of action and then you don't, have, you don't get into that real trouble of like four people talking, you have to be over everyone's shoulder and inside, the, you know, inside you look left to right, you, pan, you, you look across the room, now I need a shot of you over that side, I need a shot. So four people talking could mean 17 angles, whereas four people talking and you're outside the circle just means two angles. That's the Ken Loach. If you look at a Ken Loach film, that is the principle of what it's about, really. People just move in and through the frame, and the edit can only happen when you've seen that happen. You know, so. so you do extended takes, long takes, and you, all the action happens. And that's what I offer to the directors. Catherine, she, that's what she loved. Paul loved it. Ray Fiennes just loved it. You know, it's like, keep going. You, if you guys can do the dialogue, and doing Shakespeare <laughs> over, like, five minutes is tough we can keep shooting it you know. so uh, it, it gives you that and then if you need to break it down you can do that but you base, you've got the basis of everything in the camera you know. it's, and it's expensive in stock because you know, that this, we shot over a million feet of 16mm film on this and Hurt Lock was 1.7 million feet oh, Green Zone was 1.7 million feet and I'm not sure what we shot on race film it's quite a lot though. But the two perf helps. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you talked already a little bit about um, the night scenes at the end when they're going to the suicide bombing, where there's fire and stuff, and then the little alley, the little alleyways on the side. Yeah. And um, I think it's very beautiful, and I think the, the grain works really nice. I'm just interested in why you chose to go for so much grain, and um, particular which which stock you were using for that. That's the 500 uh, okay. T. Yeah. And, Fuji 500 and um, it's not pushed or anything like that but one of the issues there was that we had certain limited resources and on the night there's that strange thing where they leave the fire and, and it goes into absolute night Well, we'd always talked that we we're going to uh, even on the night we were shooting it I said to Catherine are you, are you going to relent on this you, in the script it said absolute blackness right? and of course film black is usually a rim light or a little bit of texture or something like that but I'd interestingly I, I always have this mi image in my head that on a Chris Menge's documentary he, he there's a whole sequence which is just dialogue with the camera still running but there's no image left because it's in such a dark space uh, it's a film about drug dealing in, in New York but it and I remember that just it stuck in my mind and, and I said that is what film black really is if it's interesting enough you can hold it and she held <coughs> she, I mean you could choose to cut out of that, that particular shot the linking shot much sooner but she doesn't and the other trick we used was we'd ask for um, flares to illuminate the sky so there was a so I wanted some transitional moment from the fire into the black and then you hold the black as long as you like and then we'll come back to something else but 
again, we were promised these things, but when they use them, we can't we can't test them because it's it will you know it'll bring out the army because of it. so we but we can use them on the night. We shot them in the, on the night, and they weren't uh, military flares; they were rescue flares. So that's what you see. These like it's almost like a rocket going up in the air. It's not the real thing. So we shot it, and then I had to make a decision how. Am I going to use that as a as a visual image? So simply, what we did was get a piece of shiny board, you know, with like poly with shiny side on it, on a lighting stand. Strapped, we had some xenon torches, these very kind of blue, uh, very powerful military torches, and literally Matt Moffat, the graphic, was waving it around like this, and they walked into the light, and with the three guys walked past you one two, three, and fade it off, Matt, fade it off, and just fade it away. And with the sound effect, the little shot you have of the flare, you kind of believe that there was some other illumination there. That's, that's what was that. But when we got to the alleyways, it was worse. The next, we came back the next night to the alleyways. Catherine said, and then we started at 7 o'clock in the evening, and we'd lit one alleyway. The, the, the lighting crew had gone in, and we'd lit an alleyway, but not pre-lit it, really. We just put lights in there. Uh, I think they should split up and go down all three alleyways. I was, yeah, but we talked about it. Military, militarily, they wouldn't do that. They would just stick together. Yeah, but they should go down all three alleyways. So, like, oh, okay. But we've only lit the one alley. Well, how long will that take? You know, so you like, like, learn this poor wing rest. Oh, you go like, I don't know, it may take two hours, but okay, that's all right. So, so we had to steal some lights off this alleyway and put them in here and put them there. And then that developed from that street. You know, we knew we had a kind of route. And in fact, there were street lights, and we were trying to knock out the street lights because, again, like the green zone, is not meant to be... It's a curfews period, you know. And we had these uh, gaff... The, well, grips and gaffers... Uh, grips and electricians who came from Lebanon. They were crazy guys. And there was one street lamp that we couldn't knock out. It was on a pole with an arm coming out like this, about six feet out, and, a, and they would throw stones at it. It would kind of hit the bulb and it would go out and it would fade back in again. <laughs> and Catherine kept saying, I thought we got rid of that. I said, yeah, it keeps coming back on again. You know. I said, and the, the, one of the, the grips looked at me and he said, do you want it out? And I said, well, that's the idea. And he took a ladder, a small ladder, he put it up against the, the pole so it was about, he could get 15 foot up. And then he started to climb up the pole. I went, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Come down, come down. Because when he got to the top, there was an arm which was, like, welded onto it that came out another, like, six feet. And now he's out over the arm, upside down. He's a huge guy as well, like this. And we were just going, no, please, please, please. And then he reached out and he grabbed the bulb and went, and just shimmy back down again. So we were actually Nate. What I'm saying, we were taking light away from those scenes to make them feel like they were, you know. And uh, you know, again, it was like light the back wall and just let them be silhouette. Where, where they come around the corner, shoot. That's all we could. That's all the energy we had left. You know, you can't run cable. And this was in a a refugee camp, basically, at night. In you know, like you now four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. We've had we've had a, a period from ten till twelve. We had a thousand people out on the streets with us because it was entertainment, you know. So it, it, it really, really difficult situations to be in. But just being light and flexible and adaptive and, and creative, you can actually get a you, you know. And I like that because then you can say to the director, 
you know, what else could we have done? We couldn't have got any more or, could, or out of it, could we? You know, if you were given this thing, yeah, but it has to be perfect. It has to be... I would really struggle <laughs> because, you know, I, I wouldn't know how much energy to put into making something perfect, if you know what I mean. I know how much energy to put into making something work and that's basically what I've done all my life, I suppose, yeah. You've got a question. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I was really interested because of the films that you've made and how you're talking as a cinematographer and you can see how lots of the way that you talk and describe the way that you like working really suitable for lots of types of films that you've done but I was really curious about this one in particular because of the elements of it I noticed that somebody gets credited as a storyboard artist and you've got those big explosions oh, to do yeah, yeah. that obviously need a t- much more technical and probably need mm. a sort of a much more planned thing and how if you could tell us a little bit about how you cope mm. when you're asked to sort of plan and follow yeah. some kind of storyboard whether you can make that work for you well we, I mean you'll often have a storyboard which is, is, is helpful but it's usually for action scenes like that but um, the opening the opening explosion which is our which was the one we did first in fact but um, was the, once you'd found the location it was pretty pretty obvious you worked with the, the special effects coordinator who's a brilliant guy who describe what he could do how big it would be and I was very conscious not to put on a sh- put a lens on that would be bigger than the explosion or one that chased the explosion because that would be too knowing you know there is a wide shot from another angle and I think we did the, we did the explosion twice and we had our we had four cameras plus we had a little minima camera so we I, I think Matt the gaffer used that as well on a bridge or something you know so and we also had the, this H, this uh, phantom style camera it wasn't really a phantom um, and I, I normally wouldn't, it wouldn't use a high speed for it I discussed this with Catherine as well because my background in if you see something like an explosion it should happen instantly it shouldn't be that repeat action thing you know but I'd also made a documentary about explosions, and the one thing that that's, that scenario was written about, if anything, was, although it's not written like that, was something I'd experienced from filming explosions in a documentary place, where you actually see a wall of energy leave the explosion in slow motion. So that justified the slow motion, and because that was the killer. The killer isn't shrapnel or... It's just energy. It just makes you disintegrate, and at the certain at the kills within the kill zone. That's the point. Of it. And so I wanted to express that, and we couldn't do a CGI thing of making a bubble of air come out from the thing, which you could quite easily do, I suppose. But we had no budget for that. So that's why we got the high speed camera, and we used the sledgehammer on the back, the bottom of a you know the roof of a car. And that stuff breaks up, or a, a tracking board on the floor and hit the tracking board. And that's all there was to it. With dirt, like, that's all. So there's two or three shots like that, and the slow motion fall, of course, yeah, and the debris. And, and did you find because you got quite a lot of um, footage where it's obviously handheld, not uh, moving with soldiers moving past you, um, carrying rifles and stuff. And was does that become? Um, Difficult in terms of safety and gun people. No, no, do they well, just ignore? There, them? Yeah, the, the, the safety issue is because I've, I've done three or four. Actually, Coriolanus is probably one of the more dangerous ones. Actually. 
But um, if you get the if being too close to the to the explosion at the front, but that's a known distance really. And uh, uh, the, the one with the the sniper thing, I, this, I was looking to see some photographs today. Where I remember we had to put on these kind of we were very close to the end of the barrel and we had to have to get those big clutch close-ups on the eye was um, just these kind of padded jackets and, <laughs> and you know goggles and things like that and perspex between you that's the kind of safety thing that you would normally expect from any good stunt coordinator would insist on all that stuff um, the worst uh, the worst thing I like on Coriolanus we did a lot of stuff with um, Kalashnikovs and of course, it's all the, the, not real bullets, of course. But the the noise is incredible. They're very noisy guns. I don't like guns. I never pick one up or use it in any way. I think they're horrible. Things. But they, but and the recoil of the, of the the cartridge. So if you ever get yourself on the right hand side, uh, you're going to get hit by these red hot cartridges. You know, so which is we got that was happening to us the other day. But that's. <laughs> You know, people have got goggles and you put hats on and you cover yourself up. And, and, you know, one of the safest places to be is behind the camera. You know, you're really, <laughs> you're tucked in. You've got the, you know, these Rafe finds were saying, when I put the camera up, you know, you become one being. That's the, that's the secret. You know, you kind of, I know it's protecting me and I'm looking after it. And it's, you know, and we're just working together, the two of us, you know, and the focus puller, of course, great focus puller. Ollie Driscoll and, and you just got a grip hanging onto your belt to make sure you're not falling or tripping or something yes all the way across with the boom mm-hmm. <laughs> um, hi I'd like to know some more about the balance that you strike between wait maybe I should take <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can hear myself uh, the balance you try to strike between um Certainly here at a film school, we hear a lot about lighting as, you know, painting with light and the sculpting of the image and this and that. But what I like so much about your photography is a very unfilmic look that makes me think that all the light is just there and real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you said something about that, that you yeah. can sacrifice light for movement and the kinetic aspects yeah. of the frame and so on. Uh, but then at a, at a certain point you referenced to yourself as thinking as a sculptor. Yeah. Still. So... I like to know how do you go about this lighting? Is it really something you look at and just say, "I just want light to look as if it's there and real and nothing else"? More than that, is because it is that. That's the fir- that's the first that. You know, well, what I've learned as well is sometimes once you start to interfere with natural light, you're all you're going to do is is fuck it up. Basically, you're going to not make. You know the best images you can get sometimes, you know, which I found on documentaries, are those magical things that you see. You know, the, the wind light coming through the window, that you know, the, that little subtle bounce off the floor and stuff. I mean, the, the difficulty when you're filming a film is that a sequence might take a day to shoot or half a day, and the sun and you know this hopefully looks natural. But all those scenes, say that opening sequence was shot over three days, and this and for the 40 days of shooting we had 40 days of sunlight no no cloud so basically the sun is starting in the east and setting in the west at three times over that one sequence and um, but I hope you don't feel that because the secret there's all these secrets that you you, you use the camera and the light like a sundial you know which, you know it's sun path it's going to go to the 
the northern hemisphere will travel towards the south, rise in the east, set in the west, and travel across the southern part of the sky. So you can always have backlight all day long, as long as you move the plan the sequences like that. So going back to your idea of storyboarding and planning, storyboarding artists don't actually make a plan about where the light is, so it's not really relevant. You know, it's like saying, and a storyboard artist can only show you this moment, but all my cinematography is about this moment connects to that moment, this your face to his face. You, you know, otherwise it's not. If you haven't tried to do make that connection, you haven't achieved the kinetic. You've simply made a picture. So I don't think it's it as painting with light. Of course, at times you can, you're controlling the light to look as natural as possible. Other times you might add a little bit of something a little bit artificial, a bit unreal, but, but generally speaking, it'll be about being as truthful as you can. And it, I say it's sacrificing the light for the subject, but it enhances the subject because it's like that. That's why people in America, I'm surprised, but the Americans said they've never seen anything like it because it's like a new way of looking at the world, but it isn't. It's simply what we've always done on documentaries. It's the difficulties applying it to a feature film. Where, like I said, it takes three days to shoot one. Uh, you know what happens in seven minutes of, of, of screen time. You know? So there's a there is a skill there. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to play that down. I'm just trying to say the skill is making it look like it didn't happen. Yeah. That there, there was nothing going on. But there's, there's often quite a lot going on. Yeah. Yes, Ben. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about the lenses that you took with you, and did you find yourself favouring one particular lens? Yeah, well, this, I mean, nearly all, because of the Super 16 nature of it, we could, the, the big advantage, and that was, the, that was the main choice, it's one thing the BBC haven't worked out about banning Super 16, is that you can put on a, a, a zoom lens, uh, uh, the Canon, uh, what is it, 11 to 168, which is the most incredible kind of range of lens. If you're going to, if you're prepared to use the zoom, I mean, I went through a whole decade of making films where I wouldn't. I may have had a zoom on the camera, but it was always to find. You found a lens, and it was it was that was the given aesthetic of British documentary filmmaking for a long time and filmmaking. No zooms, no zooms, and it's only kind of evolved from that in the last five, ten years again, where you go, now I can use this Zoom like a, like a tool, like an eye, like, you know, I'm concentrating on you, I'm looking past you, but I'm, I'm, I've got the focus, now I'm using it for focusing to be on you and not you. If I pull wider, then I can show the whole story, uh, you know, and I can go over there and I can then find something. And it's going back to, like, the days of Penny Baker and Don't Look Back and those documentaries that unashamedly would whack the Zoom in, find the focus pull out and keep that shot in the in the film that helped you to believe that that was that moment was so essential that the editor couldn't cut it out they couldn't get rid of it and the best shot i always said the best shots that you ever do will be out of focus blurry or even pitch black no no image it had to be in that film because it was that important they had to use black you know like grainy the grain on the film in this, in the chris menges film i was talking about it's called Rose in Harlem um, is, um, is because it was that important what was being said was that important and you don't lose the audience at all you know? so 
it's like a Zen thing. You're trying to, if you can find a, an image that is so thrown away, so minimal, and so unimportant, it moves you. You know, a, a couple of nights ago, we watched um, Out of Control, and we made lots of decisions. There was a good. I like enjoyed shooting that. But there's a scene where a, a prison warder goes to find. We know the boy's kind of committed suicide in the cell, and he's he waits. He's meant to be on this 15 minute watch, and he's in his kind of little booth here. And he's oh, fuck it, you know. And he gets up, and the camera just kind of gets out of his way so he can go past the camera. And the natural thing, if you'd storyboarded it or it had a director who was like concerned about all this, you would go. Now we'll have to lay a track and we'll track down the, the whole length of the corridor with him and then we'll get to the door and we'll, I want to see his face when he gets to the door and I want to do this. And all, but all we did, and I can't remember why we made this decision, was to be in this little booth with him. He looks up and you can see the doors are about you know, 30 metres away. Something like that. Uh, he pushes past the camera, go around and watch him go out and I just stay in the room, handheld, I zoom in a little bit. He walks down the corridor and he's just swinging his keys in his hand. He walks past the pool table. He goes down to the door, and he just says, "Oh fuck," you know. And when I came out, uh, everyone said that shot was just incredible. He said, and I can't even remember doing it or making a decision to do that. But but when we shot it, it might have been that you have. It was probably because we were in a real prison, and they said, you know, you've got five minutes, then you have to get out. It's nine o'clock or ten o'clock, whenever we had to get out of the prison at the evening, and. But we still had that seek, that shot, which is crucial to the scene, obviously. So it's sometimes good that you get these limitations, you get this real pressure to do something, and you just think on your feet, you know. So never be stuck with a storyboard that gives you one shot to do and then the next shot. That's my... Yeah. Margaret, Black. You said very clearly that you don't study the script, and I completely understand why yeah. you don't study the script. But listening to you talk about, you know, you just said, but I made sure that that shot was there so that the editor wouldn't take it out. Clearly you've internalized the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, can, is, I know that's instinct in a way, but can you, because I think that it's, there is very often this confusion between, we've, but, we've, but the script says... Yeah. But the story is something other yeah. than the script. Talk us through that. Well, that's right. You said it. Yeah, there's a difference between a story, telling a story, you. and making a, 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 taking the words off a page. I was uh, on Coriolanus. I describe what we're doing is like Shakespeare or not. If the film isn't better than the play or the or you know or the script, if the film isn't better than that, then you've failed. You know, if all you have are those words and that's all you've re- reproduced. No matter how well you do that, you fail because film is the best medium. It's the, it's the art of the 20th century, the Czech said. It's certainly the art of the 21st century. It's better than opera. It's better than everything else. It's better than going to see a play because we have this ability to manipulate space and time and emotion and sound and, uh, you know... And, and, and when I say manipulate, sometimes it, it's just by being so truthful with the, with the image or with the sound or with the performance you're capturing that moment that it's irresistible I mean you, well, that's why we all love that's why everybody you know, I mean film cannot be more popular it's like you go and watch a film that moves you you'll never ever forget that film I can, you know but before you make those choices instinctively 
how is it that you have come to understand the story? Has the director communicated it to you? I like to... <laughs> no, because I, 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 I think... No, this is not... I don't know, you're asking me something I don't... I, I can't honestly answer. But I think I have an ability to be at that moment in a space, not knowing. I'd rather not know what's going to happen than know. And, but have the ability to interpret it. You know, and that's it's like playing jazz or something like that. You know, you you're thrown into a, a room full of jazz musicians, and I, I don't play any instrument. But actually, Paddy Paddy Smith came on set. You know, Paddy Smith, the musician, and I was saying I was talking about music. She's a friend of Ray's, and we were talking about music and stuff. And she said, "But well, you have music. You have rhythm in everything you do there, and everything, all that shot, and the, and you've you never do the same thing twice. You just kind of always." reliving that moment but in a that equally as well but always different you know so it's your observation yeah. of the actor in that space telling you the story yeah and you yeah, exactly yeah okay all right and, that and that's why and, and the one thing i've got working for me is well there's several things you've got you've got the camera in your hand you've got the lens size of lens by using a zoom you've got the exposure which is another great tool to use and you have a kind of a rapport, you know, and I'm not, I've talked a lot tonight, but I don't spend my days talking to directors or actors or be, befriending people on set to get some kind of rapport, you know, and we never did in documentaries really, you would just, it, it's, a, it's a kind of, not a weapon exactly, it's a tool for a... Uh, but I loved the way you said that you listen with the camera, which I thought was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That told me something. You Thank you very there, much. Yeah. If you're not in it, then you don't understand it. So you, it is... And I suppose that's what people recognise. It's a kind of character. It's the Ken Loach thing. It's a kind of character in the film. The one you... You know, you're in those moments in a Ken Loach film where you think, I shouldn't be in this room listening to this. But there's nothing I can do, you know. Same in, in uh, uh, United 93... You know, the experience of getting into a cinema, getting into a seat, you know, you feel like you're putting on the seatbelt and then you go on that journey with them. It, it's one of the, that's one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen because you can't get out. You, you're in the moment there and you, and you don't want to breathe. That's what the journalist said about it. You don't want to breathe. You know the conclusion, but there's nothing you can do about it, but you still hope right to the end of the film. And I think that's the success of a kind of film like that, you know. And yes, you, that's what you're trying to, you know, whatever the subject is, you're trying to do that. You know, it could be comedy, but you're still trying to do that. You know. Alistair. Uh, the scene, my favourite scene in the High Locker is the snipers scene. Mm, yeah. And just could you tell me a little bit how you shot that? Because I just get this sense of distance. I mean, those guys look really mm. far. Well, apart. we actually used the physical distance. Well, once we found the location. It was absolutely right. That di that building was that distance. In fact, we had to get to even get the the closer shots, which are um, we double we put double the three hundred mil lens with the doubler on it, so it's six hundred mil, and uh, we had to half the dis the physical distance. But a sniper uh, sight and a bullet will travel a mile and a half, two miles apparently. So um, so we had to we had that physical distance. Uh, we had to, but you also have to show the audience. So there's a, you know, you could have held back. You can see little figures moving because they say they're figures moving, but 
you need to also give enough information. I think we, we held back and gave it just enough information and messed it up. There was heat haze, but I think we, there's some, a little bit of heat haze was added as well. And then you've got this intense close-up of the eye with the, with the fly. So uh, it's something I would... There's certainly not Ken Loach, this. This is not <laughs> the opposite of Ken Loach as well. So I don't think I'm kind of stuck in rut here. It's just... But I have a signature of what I do, and I think you would recognise whatever it is, and or any of the films I've worked on should feel like you have a signature, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you could please talk a little about how on the day you respond and communicate with your crew, especially when working with someone like Paul Greengrass, where you can expect uh, immediate changes. Yeah. Everybody's ready for it, yeah. We just like, we just have a really good laugh all day long. <laughs> you know, we did. You just you kind of enjoy it as much as you can, really. You know, quietly, without interrupting the flow of the, the, the filmmaking. And you, um, you know, when you're going to be serious and what you're going to do. But when, uh, but as, you know, that kind of, you know, I work with focus pullers, and I know if they start putting out marks on the floor, they won't do it for the actors. But it's always a mistake if you start putting marks on the floor because actors say, oh, you want me to stand here? No, no, that's just like, that's 15 feet away and that's because it's for me, it's not for you. You can walk past that or do it. Like. So, but if you, if you know they've got like 10 marks down, you're like, you'll fuck it up, you know, because you just empty your mind. You can put two, two or three marks. The door, you know where the door is, you know where the third aisle is and you can put a little mark there and if I'm hand-holding they often put a little kind of two feet away from where in case I move forward so that's all you need to know once you've got a, a rhythm pattern nobody gets you know if you do it wrong nobody gets the blame for it because it's like you know we'll have to do it again I'm afraid you know there was a hair in the gate and, oh damn there's a hair in the gate well, unfortunately that's what happens you know you know, you could be shooting anything and it can go wrong, you know. And uh, you just try and be as relaxed. I just try and be relaxed because you're using enough energy just to get through the days, you know. And the, you know. But um, but like I say, I, as soon as I turn over, I'm just like, you don't feel the pain, you don't feel whatever it is that's that making you, you know. Do you generally work with the same focus? Uh, to try, yeah, of course, try to, yeah, yeah. But we can mix it up. It's not. It's. I mean, there's a lot of good people. At least, uh, a lot of the good the guys that I've worked with have started. You know, like you, you like them as loaders or something. You'd be like, hey, you should have a go at this, and and they go, yeah, I'm not that experienced at it. That's that's a good thing. It's like when Ken Loach picked me, I wasn't experienced at making feature films, but I had the I had the. You know when he picked Bobby Carlyle or those actors as well, they weren't brilliant actors, you know. Peter Mullen wasn't as good as he comes out in the film. It's the directors that help you become the best. If you can work with good directors who trust you and challenge you and make you do your, do more. You know, Chris Doyle says about Chunk, uh, uh, Wong Kar Wai, he says, you know, like after a really hard day's work, he'll go like, "Is that all you've got, Chris? Can't you do any better than that?" You know, and uh, I'm chunking it, but you know, like, well, maybe I could. I'll try harder tomorrow. That's you know, one of our kind of common <coughs> mottos is "must try harder" because you know we, that's what we do every day. You know. Yeah. So. Yes, question. Very tiny follow-up question on Ben's question with the with the lenses because um, the zooms in the film you're operating as well. 
I find them, even though when they're very subtle, terribly um, effective as far as the dramatic effect of the scene. Mm. Um, so asking also from a director's perspective, was that always because they work, and it's, uh, was mm. it always your decision, especially the zooms, the zoom ins? Well, they, they, are, they have to be made. You have to make them. Yeah, there's no real, no communication between the director. You have to make. Once you set off, you're into that zone where you're going to make those decisions. Yeah, and um, I'm very conscious of it. You know, if I if I know if I you know I'm kind of in my head. I suppose I'm <coughs> counting beats and rhythms and listening again. Then you're going like, you know, like okay, I know now the audience know that we're in this kind of space here, but they probably want to hear a bit more of this. So choom, you're in there. You know, like. Oh, I've gone too close there. I'll just twitch. And and I never use a motor. It's always a finger thing, you know. So a nose in bar, just you just roll your finger on the on the thing, you know. You can do the whole thing. You can do do two of them. I don't know. It's it's a little thing with your hands, you know. It's it's like you should it's your body, your hands, your eyes, your ears, your breath. <laughs> Do a bit of yoga. That's good for you. It helps you get straight again, you know. And you, and it gets you kind of, you know. That's exciting. You know? So, so you tell the director afterwards or before, maybe you talk about this. this might be a scene where I might use my zoom a lot. But I'm just no, no, no. Kath- well, Catherine was going to do more of it. Do more of it again, okay. you know. And she would, she would. In fact, it's shakier than I would have made it. She was going like, got to do more of that. Okay, like, and and with the other guys, they. They're not. I'd worked with Scotty Mac before. I hadn't worked with Derade or uh, Niels was the first time I worked with Niels, and it, it, they were a little bit nervous and they were trying to m- mimic something. And I think this, you know you just got to tell them not to do that. You just look at it yourself and see it. You know. And then Catherine said, "Yes, but do more of it." And they go, "Okay." And sometimes because I can always feel when someone's forced a little move, you know, and I can feel when I forced a move, but it's. But when it's right, you feel that's the one they cut in the film as well. You know? So, yeah, you should feel it's kind of... And it's often that thing of, like, the opposite. What You're like, this is too intense. I don't want to be... Yeah, I should be backing off here. And then you go, oh, you've gone in closer, you've gone right in the eye, you know. Shit, I'm getting closer to this action here. And that gives you anxiety, you know, that's the... It's a thrill. Last couple of questions. So, Joe, what's... what's um. Um, I have a question about your preparation and then consequently probably about the post. Um, what I love about your film is the texture and the vividness of the image and um, the hot highlights, like the really nice highlights, but yeah. yet the, the high contrast and the darkness. And um, I was wondering if you do that, if you did that through tests with printer lights or in the... Well, again, my documentary, I travelled, l- luckily I went to like 50, 60 countries and I filmed in, in these... In, in the Middle East and I've filmed in Africa and 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 Scandinavia and the light is completely different all throughout you know one of the things I think about the film stock is uh, Kodak film is made for the the, the tropics because Kodak because LA is on the is the same as North Africa latitude whereas Tokyo is a little further north so you, I think it's a softer it's better for the softer light but anyway I'm using that camp that stock for uh, for uh, for the the Middle East and the desert, which because it's it's pretty hot and pretty clear, but I've, I've just experienced it, so I know the film stock has that latitude, and it's again where you put the exposure. You know, there was a DI on this, but I didn't, I wasn't involved in that. I didn't, and I didn't shoot the stuff in Canada as well, which has a very nice but different look. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't involved in DI. I was already on Green Zone by then, so um, it was. So it has, you know, that is what it gives you. 
it's different to British weather. <laughs> it is incredibly hot. Yeah. And Paul was because we Paul Greengrass was when he saw this, he was saying, "But our film isn't that bright." I said, "We have we shot in Spain in the winter and Morocco, and it's the light itself that you can." You know, people often say, "You know, the color palette of this film. How did you achieve that? What do you do? Do you use filters and stuff?" I never filter anything. It will all be, you know, the color palette will come from the costume and the designer you know and what you exclude you know so you may exclude primary colours you know we'll have a red car in that shot we'll move that car and put a grey one there or you know whatever or I'll frame that out you know like someone in an orange t-shirt might look wrong in a so that you can balance those out but a good a good costume designer does that a good you know a designer on the film will give you a palette for the film and I think the film it's stock itself well, try and be as truthful as you can. Then you can manipulate it a little bit in DI. Take the green out of the, out of the if it's too green, you know, in the bushes or whatever. But that was pretty much what it was because it was a desert. We'd gone to the right latitude, free right. We'd gone to a similar kind of place. And that was a good choice. Going to Morocco isn't the best choice for making a film about it right, in my opinion. But, you know, it's been done a lot. You had a question. Um, well, it's kind of jumping back a bit, so I don't know how much you'll want to do it, but um, it was a, it was following on with the director's thing. You were saying, Catherine was saying, let's have a little bit more of the wobble and mm. stuff. So if you're the person that's in the moment, I mean, to, and there's several of you filming the same mm. moment, I mean, presumably she's picking that up with the rushes, and I was wondering how often you were viewing the rushes. And no, no, because it wasn't. It was just we had monitors. We had very bad playback. Oh, right, she had right, four right, very right. small monitors, and she, and what you'd find is she could watch one camera. Yeah. Okay. And and she go, that was great, but I'm not sure what you were doing, so we'll do it again anyway. Uh, you know, and sometimes we like rotate the cameras around, change the angle, change. Okay, picture. so she'd be there. Yeah, yeah. But the rushes took three days. Yeah. It was being processed in London. It took three days to get back at least, and then it was on DVD. It's not, you know, not particularly good transfers. Could I ask you a tiny other question? When you did the three alleys, that chase mm. scene, did did all the actors go at the same time, or mm. did you do? Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, well, I mean, they split. They go in the set like that, and then we, when we, you know, there was a point where I was running up and down the. Jeremy Renner's alley um, there was a funny uh, I thought it was funny because um, <laughs> I was he was running down the alleyway and I'm running after him with the camera and because um, I'll, I'll tend if it's the, that kind of thing I'll tend to do those rather than give it to someone else I was running down the alleyway and um, and then she came back and said better give Jeremy a rest why don't you just go and do a POV running down <laughs> it's like, he's like 32 and I'm 52 it's like, it's like, and I've got to keep she running anyway, it, it was it was funny I, I was fine I like because like I say when you've got the camera in your hand it's, um, it's painless really it's, it, I love the stuff when you grab the cats and things yeah that's yeah, again that's just documentary and again that was on the first day of shooting I think and she, it was very much like she was really into that you know any any observational stuff in the windows anything like that you know. and again just primed all the other cameras to like if you see something just shoot it don't think of it you don't have to ask questions you don't have to there's no storyboard you go shoot that and uh, yeah and I suppose there's little moments just add yeah that it's like that something. authenticity that you're talking yeah, about it's yeah. like you're, you are yeah, yeah 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 thank you
Barry, I think we could go on and on all, yeah, all yeah, night. No, it's fascinating to listen <laughs> yeah. to you talk, and I think we've all really enjoyed it. And I'm sure there's lots more questions. Um, there are some drinks in the bar, so I think you will have a lot of further questioning. I might not be. I'll serve a quick drink. I think. Um, thank you very much for coming pleasure. in. Congratulations on the success of the film and Great, your thank work. You. Thank and um, I'd just like to thank. I think everybody's really appreciated this evening. Good. So. Thanks a lot. Thank you.